that triathlon show 400. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we have another Q&A episode. This week, the theme is gear and technology. Just as a quick reminder and a quick piece of uh, housekeeping, I guess, if you're interested in asking questions for future Q&As, then the best thing to do uh, is to sign up for the Scientific Triathlon newsletter on our website, uh, down in the footer of the website, to be specific, because I always put any requests for questions in the weekly newsletter, which usually comes out on Thursday morning European time. The other option is that you can follow us on Instagram and follow along in the Instagram stories because I also put the request for questions there. However, of course, it's quite easy to miss an Instagram story because they disappear. So that's why I'm saying that the newsletter is probably the the best option because that one is easiest not to miss any requests for questions that I put out. Uh, but all right, before we get into this week's Q&A, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. They help athletes perform at their best with electrolyte and fueling products and with free online tools, education, and a patented sweat test. You can use the free fuel and hydration planner on their website to get a personalized plan for your carbohydrate, sodium, and fluid intake. And you can also book a free 20-minute video consultation to chat through your plan with the athlete support team. I have used their entire range of products for a long time, and I think that they are absolutely brilliant. And you can get 15% off your first order by using the code TTS23 on precisionfuelandhydration.com. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer allows you to improve your technique, power and swim training consistency, even when you're short on time. It's a great tool for busy athletes because you can do a quality workout in just 15 minutes at home, even on days when you don't have time to get to the pool. It is a perfect complement to pool and open water swimming because it allows you to focus specifically on key aspects of your stroke, including your catch and your power. And you can isolate these aspects more easily than you can in the water. You can Try Zenate risk-free for up to 30 days. So if you don't love it, just send it back and you can get 20% off your first order on zenatewinter.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into this week's Q&A. The first question for today is from Balam Tri-Team and uh, the question is simply carbon fiber versus barefoot running. And I'm going to answer this question concisely. If you want to run fast, then carbon fiber, carbon fiber shoes for sure. Uh, I don't know that there are any real benefits of barefoot running. Uh, I do like the thought actually of using barefoot shoes in the gym to make sure that you really work all the small muscles of the foot, uh, work on, on foot stability. But in terms of running, the only real scenario where I would see barefoot running as a or barefoot running shoes as an option would be that you would still do your all of your runs in normal running shoes let's say whether they be carbon fiber or not but then finish one or a, few, a couple of runs per week off on on a grass field with barefoot shoes to work on some mechanics do some strides and so on this is actually very theoretical as i've personally never done this or even prescribed this i haven't i've never used barefoot shoes nor coached anybody that used them but that's that's the extent that i would go to with uh, using or Describing barefoot shoes, just some really short biomechanics focused work on on the run. Uh, I think that uh, yeah, the, the world has moved away 
away from from barefoot running shoes they they are a product of marketing hype from some 10 years ago or so but i i really don't think that there's from from a running perspective uh any benefit of of using them in in running necessarily that's the uh the short and concise answer that i that i would give The next question is from Vesa, who asks, crank versus uh, pedal-based power meter, what are the pros and cons of each? So I think that some people still see the crank-based power meters as gold standard, because uh, this was the the one way really that power could be accurately measured back in the day when power meters first came to market. These days, from my understanding and uh, my knowledge, I think that pedal-based power meters have come so far that I don't really believe there is any relevant difference in accuracy or precision. And uh, with that, I prefer, I much prefer pedal-based power meters because you can easily shift them between bikes. But also, and this is something a lot of people don't consider, when you size down in cranks, which I think a lot of triathletes should do, you don't have to buy new cranks with a power meter included, which would obviously be a lot more expensive than just going to a normal non-power meter crank of a shorter size. Uh, so that is a big advantage uh, that you have the flexibility of easily changing changing crank length without having wasted your money on the uh, on the crank-based power meter. Uh, personally, I've used the Favero Asioma uh, power meters for years, uh, and I love them. Uh, I've had zero issues with them. They are incredibly reliable and easy to use. So generally, that's what I recommend to, to any athlete that asks me. Um, but I'm sure there are other pedal-based power meters and power meters in general that are also good. But yeah, I definitely think that pedal-based power meters with the flexibility they offer is, uh, in my opinion, the way to go. The next question is from somebody who I've lost the name of. Sorry about that. But the question is lactate application. When to measure and how does it work? So I guess I'm I'm going to give a bit of a longer answer here. uh, And I'm going to answer this question from the perspective of 99% of the triathlon population, if not more like 99.9%, rather than the top 0.1% fighting for Olympic goals and world championship titles. Uh, I think that for almost everyone, lactate testing within training in your day-to-day training is overkill. It's just a curiosity, but it's not something that I think makes you take better training decisions if you have 10 to 20 bucks to spend on lactate strips each session you do and you find it entertaining by all means you can check your lactate after intervals but is it going to make you faster than not doing it and just keeping your head screwed on and uh, keep staying engaged in your training process i personally don't think so at all uh, i think that one thing that is important to remember is that for every top athlete that you see being successful with a lot of lactate testing there there are counter examples of another athlete having similar success without without it so even at the top level i don't think it's necessary although at that level i definitely think that i understand why why you might want to use it because there is a potential there for a marginal but important gain uh, where i do think that lactate testing has great utility however even and now i'm talking even for amateurs and uh, and most the 99 percent of the triathlon population is in doing formal testing every once in a while to establish training zones and thresholds so in a formal test like this you would establish your first and second lactate thresholds your lt1 and lt2 and uh, you would 
get to know these in terms of where are they in terms of heart rate and power or pace depending on if it's a bike or a run test and also rpe never forget to uh, also take note of rpe for each uh, stage in a lactate uh, step test uh, so so this will allow you to set some training targets so for example in your low intensity training you would make sure want to make sure that you are below that lt1 uh, it doesn't mean one watt below it but it means that you have a big zone where uh, your your easy training your low intensity training should be done and and where in that easy zone it is that's more of a nuanced question that has a lot of different answer and that's beyond the scope of today's discussion uh, establishing lt2 is the one that a lot of people find the most interesting because that is your uh uh, quote-unquote threshold uh, or even uh, your FTP uh, or a lot of people would equate it to the FTP uh, but I actually think that the LT2 is uh, is less important it is still useful but it is less important because you can use alternative tests like critical power critical speed to to assess that kind of boundary between the heavy and the severe intensity domain uh, so basically what that allows you to do in practice is that it it sets the boundary or the range where below a certain range of heart rate or power or pace you're clearly in the kind of steady state high aerobic work range uh, and that's what we call quote-unquote threshold training and above that you are clearly in a non-steady state so that is the domain where you would do your high intensity training please note here that i'm i'm talking about uh, this i talked about lt2 as a range and and this is important because there's no point thinking that you're threshold is at exactly 245 watts or 445 per kilometer or 738 uh, per mile there's, there's no such accuracy or precision in these measurements and and there's also a threshold is really a quite a bad word because it's not as if things change dramatically when you go from just slightly slightly below threshold to slightly slightly above threshold it is more of a phase transition and i will link to an article by dr mark burnley about that uh, but uh, either way uh, knowing your lt1 and your lt2 can be useful for these reasons because it does establish more or less where are the the transition the phase transitions between these different intensity domains the moderate intensity domain the heavy intensity domain and the severe intensity domain uh, or in more layman's terms i would call it low intensity training moderate intensity training or threshold training and high intensity training or or let's say vo2 max or interval training uh, so you could if you wanted to you could do formal tests to establish these thresholds and zones a few times per year even but uh, even if you do it just once per year that's pretty good because it does allow you to monitor your year-to-year progress and also uh, the relationship between lactate and heart rate would generally stay fairly constant over the course of a year so even if your speed or your power gets better at your lt1 or your lt2 uh, so that's something that you can't keep training to the same speed or power levels necessarily throughout the year but your heart rate is unlikely to change significantly uh, unless you are very new to training and the same goes for rpe so having those calibrated would give you a, actually a calibration of heart rate and rpe to lactate that would last you for a fairly long time and be pretty accurate even if it's 
many, many months later or even up to a year later. Uh, so the most important use of formal lactate testing like this, uh, as I kind of alluded to already, is not to assess your LT2, uh, but I think that LT1 is the more important one, uh, just to make sure that your low-intensity training is at the right level uh, so that you don't get it wrong and train too hard, being constantly at or above LT1, because that could be a really big ob obstacle for you to progress. Also, uh, the reason that I think that LT1 is a lot more important to assess than LT2 is because we really don't have many good field tests uh, to really accurately assess LT1. We have the torque test, which is uh, which is pretty okay, but uh, some people struggle with finding that useful or knowing exactly when when they are <laughs> they are huffing and puffing too much versus not. So so I think that for LT2 we have better alternative tests like the critical power critical speed tests even. A, a traditional FTP test would not be a terrible way to go about things, but for LT1, I think that's where we lack alternatives, and and it's probably the mo more important parameter to know anyway. Uh, and the other reason that is the more important parameter to know, especially for let's say amateur triathletes focusing on half and full distance triathlon, is that I think that from what I've seen, at least LT1 is uh, a better performance predictor than LT2, simply because for unless you are at the very pointy end and you're competing at the 7.3 distance, uh, you will race much closer to LT1 than to LT2, so that would be the better performance predictor. Uh, then the ch things change, of course, if your focus is the sprint distance, then your LT2 would be more important than your LT1, uh, at least from a performance marker standpoint. And for an Olympic distance, this could also be the case that LT2 is more important, but that would depend on how fast you are over the Olympic distance, because if you are uh, com completing it in three hours or above three hours, I would still think that LT1 is probably closer to the intensity that you're competing at rather than LT2. So uh, I guess a logical question that I might get if uh, somebody was now standing in front of me and and following up on what, what I'm speaking about here is, well, wh why don't I need to do tests very frequently to make sure that all my uh, thresholds are up to date all the time, or even indeed take samples during the sessions to make sure that I train at exactly the right intensity? And and I think that it, it comes back a little bit to the fact that we're not talking about an exact science with your threshold is exactly this or that and and also we're not talking about dramatic changes in your physiology when you go from just below a quote-unquote threshold to just above again it comes back to those phase transitions that i mentioned and uh, i don't i'm not aware of any evidence that compares training with lactate intensity control versus doing a similar training program but just using the traditional metrics of rpe heart rate and pace or power uh, and not using lactate in day-to-day -day training uh, so i i don't think uh, any study has been done uh, that has compared this and uh, yeah it would be uh, an interesting thing to see absolutely i would be uh, all over it if, if somebody conducted that study but i don't think it exists and just because some top level athletes are doing it in training does not mean that it's absolutely certainly the best thing for every uh, amateur athlete to do as well so i think that what yeah what should be a much bigger interest and concern uh, that rather than uh, using lactate in your sessions should be Am I really good at using power, pace, and RPE and heart rate in my sessions? Am I really in tune with my uh, with how my body feels at different levels and and in tune to when changes occur that a certain uh, 
power suddenly st- or starts to feel easier or uh, I can hold a certain pace for longer at the same effort, that sort of thing. And even when I first interviewed uh, Olaf Alexander Bu on this podcast, uh, that was uh, actually way before most people had ever heard of him because uh, Christian and Gustav were at that point still being coached by Adil Tveiten. But one of his key pieces of advice for amateurs that he said was to become really good at the basic stuff. So understanding your power duration curve and your speed duration curve understanding your rpe and and those sorts of things it was not about uh, lactate use and in fact he has repeatedly said on on this podcast and on other podcasts uh, that uh, yeah for most amateur athletes it does not make any sense to uh, to use lactate testing like they do in training uh, so yeah in summary from my perspective yes doing formal lactate testing i think has value uh, even if you just do it once per year uh, the main benefit of this would be to establish how strong your LT1 is and if this is something you need to improve on, uh, let's call it you might have a weak aerobic base. Um, because for most listeners of this podcast, that will be a very crucial marker for uh, the, the racing that, that you're probably doing. Uh, LT2 also has relevance uh, for your training prescription and for as a performance marker uh, but uh, with lt2 it is less important because we just have good alternative tests and of course i know i already said it but uh, lt1 is so crucial also because uh, it really allows you to make sure that your low intensity training is really low intensity training and it's not too hard and this is quite common in amateur athletes and that is why i do think that formal lactate testing while it is not necessary to be good it can have uh, quite some value uh, i do have one final caveat though if you do decide to to do formal lactate testing and you do it in a lab i think that a lot of labs provide these tests on autopilot in a very lazy way with no critical thinking or actual analysis they uh, they ass- they run the numbers through an algorithm and spit out the results and it is understandable that these uh, algorithms and and uh, analysis tools exist when we talk about when we talk about scientific research because we have to make these threshold mes- measurements objective when we're talking about scientific research we we just can't have them be eyeballing the curve and doing subjective analysis but i think that for an individual uh running the numbers through the algorithm is terrible or it can be terrible at least because it doesn't really give good results uh, for all individuals so actually the best way to establish where your lt1 is and where your lt2 is is by simply looking at the lactate curve and this is something that mark burnley and i discussed how to do in episode 330 when when i interviewed him but uh, just as a short summary lt1 would be uh, the step just before the first inflection point in the curve so the the final step of uh, that you test where your lactate is still at baseline essentially or before the first significant increase in uh in lactate from baseline and lt2 would be the the step just before you have a second inflection point uh, so when my athletes for example go to a lab to do lactate testing i always get the raw data and do the analysis myself and this is something that i recommend everybody do uh, either do it with their coach or learn how to do it yourself it's not super uh, difficult uh, because in many cases if you just use the result of the automatically calculated thresholds that the lab gives you it makes zero sense at at all on the individual level and uh, yeah it, it pains me a bit to say that uh to have so many caveats with people doing lab testing and that so many lab tests provide in my opinion really poor service in this way the same would apply with uh 
with a ramp test and with uh, with gas exchange tests um, because I am in general uh, a fan of understanding your physiology better and doing these sorts of things but it's just that uh, some of these things that are done on autopilot and without critical thinking and analysis just can end up actually hurting the athlete more than uh, than helping them so so that's the thing that to be really aware of when it comes to if you are going to do some formal lactate testing and and actually if you think that yeah I I, I maybe could do lactate testing but I don't know how to do the analysis and I don't have anybody that I would ask then to be honest it's not the end of the world to not do it you can definitely use uh, just a good old-fashioned common sense and uh, just learn how to be really in tune with your body without any of uh, any of these gadgets really so uh, so it's it's absolutely not the case that you're going to be at a disadvantage generally but it is a there are some interesting additional data points i guess that lactate brings you can bring you but uh it is not necessary to be a good athlete or to train optimally i don't think The next question is one that I'm going to answer really quickly. Again, I lost the name of who asked this, but the question is, is a lactate meter a worthwhile purchase for your pain cave? And I would say for almost all amateur athletes, no. Uh, I think that the only reason or the only scenario where it would make sense is if you have a coach that is well-versed in lactate testing and in interpreting lactate data. And if you're at the point as an athlete where you've already nailed the basics of training and are, are now starting to look for uh, the, the finer points of uh, optimizing and fine-tuning your, your training process, uh, at that point it might it might make sense. But you also have to be ready to, for a bit of a learning curve in learning how to even sample the, uh, the lactic data yourself. It's not uh, super easy necessarily, and I do recommend sampling from the earlobe rather than the finger uh, which is harder as well so it's it's more of a learning curve than what it looks like on youtube normally so all in all for most athletes i'd say that no it's not worthwhile but there are a few exceptions the next question is from stoffel who asks why and how to incorporate uh, a vo2 master and moxie in daily training all right, so I have never personally used a VO2 master nor a MOXIE. Uh, I have been involved in uh, seeing them in use in some elite athlete settings. And I have also personally experimented with uh, another SMO2, so muscle oxygen saturation device that is not the MOXIE, to be clear. Uh, so I have some experience of the actual method or the type of measurement, but not the device itself. And I do know that a lot of people say that the MOXIE is, is the gold standard in muscle oxygen saturation. So maybe my answers are not uh, not completely reflective of, of what you would get with a MOXIE. Um, I think both of these devices have potential as part of formal testing in particular, uh, kind of uh, going back to what we discussed already with lactate testing, that it's maybe not something to do use in daily training, but as part of formal testing, they can, uh, they can help. I think one of the cool things about these devices is that uh, they can help you do testing in the real world. So rather than running on a treadmill, uh, running on a track, uh, but with the the power of a lab basically available to you so starting with the vo2 master obviously it is well known and the name as the name implies for measuring the uh, oxygen consumption so uh, doing a vo2 max test knowing your vo2 max is obviously a very obvious use case of the vo2 master i don't think that that's a very important one because uh, obviously you want to know your 
uh, athletic profile, but you know if you have a v- good VO2 max or not by doing a, let's say, a five-minute all-out test on the bike or even something like a ramp test on the bike, uh, like the one they have in Swift. And even though you won't know exactly what your VO2 max is, it, you will have a good idea of if it's good or or not so good. So, so knowing the exact number, in my opinion, is not actionable and it's not super important, but uh, that being said, it can be fun. Uh, but more important and maybe a slightly more actionable, uh, maybe not super uh, super actionable, but slightly would be measuring your running economy in particular. Uh, also, uh, gross efficiency in cycling, but but more so, I would say running economy. That is extremely important for running performance, and the longer the performance, the more, the more important it becomes, really. And uh, the thing that you could um, that you could say about running economy is that if you have a poor running economy, then uh, that could maybe be a sign that you would want to try to e- increase the volume of running a bit, increase the frequency of running a bit, and maybe adding some strength training if you already have good uh, good volume and frequency of running. So, so that's something that could have some actionable impact. Uh, cycling growth efficiency, same thing really with uh, both the the volume of training and the frequency of training and the strength training those would be the main uh, levers that you can use to potentially improve your efficiency um, although the cycling growth efficiency has much less variation from person to person than running economy and i also think that the scientific evidence for how to improve it is is not as strong as for running economy uh, but yeah, I don't think it's hugely controversial to say that uh, it is most likely the same kinds of things that that you would do for running economy. Uh, so so knowing your running economy, your growth efficiency would be a, a more interesting use case, in my opinion, than knowing your VO2 max. But again, this is something that can be part of formal testing, so not day-to-day training stuff. Uh, but another interesting thing that a lot of people are not aware of is that the VO2 master measures certain parameters from the respiratory system, uh, which we actually talked about a little bit in last week's Q&A. So it does measure things like your ventilation, your respiratory frequency, etc. And uh, this could allow you to, to see if the respiratory system is potentially somewhat limiting for you. So those would be the main things I would say with the VO2 master, but I would definitely look at them as these are things that could be incorporated in formal testing it's not things that i would look at using in day-to-day training which the question is about Uh, now moving over to the moxie uh, specifically or more generally muscle oxygen saturation smo2 I think that the most interesting thing that you can do there is looking for the transition between intensity domains, uh, kind of as we talked about already in the lactate uh, testing question. Basically, based on the slope of the SMO2 curve, if you do something like a step test similar to you would do for a lactate test, then you should be able to say if you are in the moderate, heavy, or the severe domain. So in theory, SMO2 could replace lactate testing in this way, and maybe one day it will. I definitely wouldn't be super surprised if it if it did because it has some advantages it's cheaper overall because you don't have to use the test strips for every test and it is continuous uh, and it can integrate with uh, devices like like your garmin and uh, and platforms and so on i haven't used it a lot um, but from my use of it again remembering this is not moxie but another device is that i still think it suffers a little bit from a lack of usability uh, for being useful in day-to-day training so 
uh, yeah, it's, you have to go into WKO or Golan Cheetah uh, to look at the uh, to look to look at the SMO two data. It's a minor inconvenience. It's not a big deal. So I'm maybe going to give that a pass. But the main thing really is that based on my experience, the placement can influence the readings a bit. So if you place it a little bit too me- far medially or too far laterally on your uh, VL, your vastus lateralis in a cycling test, for example, then you might get uh, quite different readings. And I've also heard that things like pigmentation and adipose tissue thickness and so on can have a big impact there. Uh, so... That being said, I know that uh, there are a lot of people that use the Moxie and they do it with a lot of confidence in the results. So um, I'm def- not questioning the device itself, um, but it's just for me, I put in more time and effort into uh, using and understanding lactate. So for me, I have better confidence in that technology still, even though, again, on paper, SMO2 has a lot of advantages over lactate, it being continuous and uh, and not having the, the cost associated with lactate test strips. But this is coming from, um, from a full-time coach. I have all the time in the world, or at least I have my working week to uh, to spend on learning how to use lactate and how to use other other things. If you're a normal amateur athlete that does not have that amount of time you're not going to get something like a moxie or a vo2 master and be able to benefit from it without putting in significant amount of effort and time into learning it and that amount of time the amount of of gains that you will make are marginal uh, so it makes more sense to spend that time frankly training and uh, and doing things more directly related to improving yourself as an athlete uh, as we'll talk about in one of the questions uh, further below as well but yeah in summary i would say that the vo2 master and and any smo2 technology they can be great tools in the testing toolbox i think for formal testing in particular smo2 i do see the potential for use in some key training sessions because it is uh, non-invasive it is continuous measurement it can integrate with garmin computers and so on but uh that devi- but the devices are way harder to use than people think and frankly if you buy them there would be probably a lot of time spent in frustration or just misinterpreting the data and making wrong conclusions so i just don't recommend any athlete buy these devices if you're curious then seek out a coach or a lab that has them and uh, are really knowledgeable in using them and and simply ask to pay for a test to uh to get the data that uh and and not having to put in the the sunk cost and it is a big sunk cost with these devices uh, and also all of the time that you would have to spend learning how to do it properly it it just simply doesn't make sense and especially with the price of the vo2 master we're talking i i haven't looked but last i checked i think it, it's something like five thousand us dollars whereas the moxie would be more like 800 us dollars uh i I think it's something like that so i don't think we'll ever get to the point where athletes should have a vo2 master at home maybe if anything we might get there at some point with the smo2 uh just like power meters uh years ago used to be just not worth it for the cost but now they are pretty much on most serious athletes bikes uh it's not to say that you can't be good without a power meter of course you can be good without a power meter but it does provide an advantage smo2 
we might get not to the same point as power meters i don't think we'll get there but we might get to a point where the price and the potential benefit is at more of a balance where for some ambitious athletes it makes sense to have them but i don't think we're there right now so that would be that would be my take The next question is from Henry, who asks, triathletes in general seem to rely heavily on tech compared to swimmers and runners. Why? Well, I think that part of it is tradition uh, for some reason, probably because it was a young sport, not not bound by any tradition. Triathletes have always been open-minded to not doing things the way they've always been done, done but challenging the status quo and see if there are thing, ways that we can do things better. And technology is just one example of that, but it is certainly a good example. Uh, so, so I think that that's the main thing, the tradition of, of running and swimming as, as sports that have been established for a lot longer. And uh, yeah, coaching practices have been passed down generation to generation, really. I do think that uh, the open-mindedness is great, but we have to be careful and become much better critical thinkers. The more products come out on the market and the, the, the stronger the marketing claims are that we see, uh, we should be curious, we should be interested in learning more about things that have the potential to improve our craft, but we should question things, especially when they come directly from the manufacturers. Uh, and yeah, I think just to generalize a bit, but runners and swimmers probably often fall in the category of this is how things have been done traditionally and it works, so why would we change it? Whereas triathletes, on the other hand, often fall in the category, category of naively and uncritically uh, thinking that any piece of technology or any supplement or similar that comes with a somewhat plausible marketing claim will definitely make us faster. And uh, yeah, I don't think that that's the right position to take for sure. Uh, so I would just say that when whenever we're evaluating any piece of technology, uh, then we should ask ourselves a few key questions so first of all does the technology really do what it says it does what does it measure and has it been validated and if so how so for example uh, let's think about garmin watches they tell you to that your recovery time is 48 hours well it there's no way of measuring recovery time what is it measuring it's measuring heart rate recovery some uh, some other parameters that it puts into the first beat algorithms uh, i'm not really super familiar with how it calculates the recovery time uh, it's probably not completely uh, open source but they pro there probably are some white papers explaining a bit more about how how they do it uh, but that being said um yeah we, what do we know about the connection between heart rate recovery and similar corrections and recovery time absolutely nothing i have never seen any evidence uh to show anything like that so it hasn't been validated uh and uh, yeah so this is an example of where we really need to put our bs filter on with that kind of technology because the recovery time it doesn't measure it directly so what does it measure and is it validated or not in this ex example it is not validated and another question that we need to ask ourselves is is what it does or what it measures of any relevance so i gave an example above vo2 max if you get a vo2 master and you measure your vo2 max does it change your training in any way probably not you know if you have a good vo2 max or not as i said based on things like your five minute power uh five minutes pace uh that and or ramp test result so 
yeah, and you're not going to be using the VO2 max uh, to, in training, really. So, yeah, thing is what we're actually measuring relevant because we can we can have all the data in the world. It doesn't make us better athletes. the The key question is, what is the data that can make me a better athlete? And it's probably better to be really good at using a few data channels than being garbage at using a ton of data channels. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Uh, A third question that I would ask myself is, in what context is the technology useful and in what context not so much? So for example, muscle oxygen saturation that we talked about above, um, when we look at things like the Norwegian triathletes that are using it a lot, they, they're doing it in different environments. They're doing it in, in hot training camps. They're doing it at altitude and they're training 30, 35 hours a week. Uh, it And they have a full-time coach that coaches basically two athletes. So he has the time to analyze the data of those two athletes. So, so in that case, yes, it can provide some marginal gains that are incredibly valuable because the difference between winning or losing is zero point one percent. So, so, so that so that context is completely different than what most age group triathletes are in, and in that context, the SMO two can be a really good parameter, but maybe it's not so useful in in other uh, in in other scenarios or in other contexts, and. Uh, Finally, and this is a really important one as well, is this the best use of my resources? So let's think about buying a new bike. Is that really the best use of my resources uh, or is my the bike that I have more than good enough and I can spend a third of the money or a quarter of the money that I would spend on a new bike on doing some aero testing with a good aero testing provider and maybe upgrade some of the components on my bike and I would actually get so much faster from that process than I would by just buying a new bike. Uh, so so those are four questions that I would always ask myself when evalu- evaluating any technology. And this is where, uh, yeah, as triathletes, we need to be better uh, at doing these sorts of things, at uh, evaluating claims and devices and technologies critically, rather than just um, buying everything that the marketing teams uh, throw at us. All right, and the final question for today is from William, who asks, can you break down the difference in wetsuits by brand, price point, etc.? Why are some wetsuits $200 and some are $2,000? Are sleeves always better or are they sometimes worse than sleeveless? Uh, also, if it's within scope, it would be great to get your thoughts on how to systematically go about purchasing a new wetsuit. My current wetsuit just turned 11 and it's looking a little sad, starting to get some holes in it as the neoprene wears out. I picked this one as a beginner because it was on sale and I had a club discount, but I never really enjoyed swimming in it. I feel my shoulders fatigue much sooner compared to swimming without it. Now that I'm a bit more experienced, I'd like to be more systematic for my next wetsuit. Is there any way besides ordering a selection of wetsuits with some decent return policies and trying them on? Any way to narrow down the list of wetsuits to try? So that is a really good question. Uh, Let's start with the easiest part of it, which is sleeved versus sleeveless. I recently had Professor Maria Francesca Piacentini on the podcast to discuss the science of wetsuits. And one thing that she said that the science is pretty clear on is that sleeved wetsuits are faster than sleeveless. On average, that is. But still on the individual level, if you really struggle in all sleeved wetsuits, uh, I, I don't think you do because you only tried one wetsuit really but there are maybe a handful of people that 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 will apply to uh, that really 
cannot get comfortable in any sleeve wetsuit then yeah in that case i would say that a sleeveless wetsuit will still be faster because if you're not comfortable then yeah that's going to be a big problem and especially the longer the distance is that uh, that could be problematic but i would say that your wetsuit is 11 years old lots have changed in wetsuit technology so you will probably easily find even at cheaper price points wetsuit, great wetsuits that are uh, that have good mobility in the shoulder area so i don't think this should be an is- issue if you find the right wetsuit the right size and everything you will find something that is sleeved and and fits you well and is comfortable and that will in general be a little bit faster than a sleeveless wetsuit so um yeah this leads me to my next important point and that is that the fit of the wetsuit is always the most important thing you can have the best wetsuit in the world but if it's the wrong size or just for some reason not the right fit for you then it's not going to be a great wetsuit for you no matter how good it is on paper or how good the technology is in it for most people i think that uh, no matter the brand and model of the wetsuit selecting the right size is uh, the main thing and that will that should give you a good fitting wetsuit but there are certainly cases where uh, just because of your body uh, shape body size or anatomy some wetsuits might just suit you better than others and and you just cannot find the right size for one particular model or the right fit i should say but another model or another brand will have will fit you well so so this yeah this might happen uh, but i think the the number one level really to look at is just selecting the right size for a particular wetsuit brand and model obviously the the different brands might have slightly different uh, sizing and and that's something to always look into per brand per model really Uh, what about the difference in price points then i think that there's definitely a reason that the expensive wetsuits are expensive they use the very best materials they have lots of sunk costs in r&d they have uh, hand sewing done in some parts of the wetsuits at least rather than machine sewing and uh, i can't speak for all models and brands but uh, generally my experience is that the expensive wetsuits are faster and feel better but and this is a big but how much faster and better are they really uh well i think that they're not so much better that anybody should feel that they have to get a one thousand dollar wetsuit or a two thousand dollar wetsuit to compete in triathlons uh of course uh that's not the case uh the top end wetsuits have improved a lot but so have the entry level wetsuits and for example uh, i have an entry level roca wetsuit which at the time of recording this sells for 295 dollars so of course it's not cheap and you can probably find even cheaper wetsuits than that but uh, in my opinion that is a really good wetsuit and i would be more than happy to race in it uh, if my uh, high-end wetsuit let's say broke down and i think i would be very marginally slower than than in a top-end wetsuit so so in a way i think that wetsuits and bikes they very much fall in that same category that you can you can have a bike or a wetsuit that is three to four times more expensive than another one, but the performance gain uh, from the wetsuit or the bike itself is very marginal, very, very marginal, because at the end of the day, the bike isn't pushing the pedals for you, nor does it put you in a fast aerodynamic position automatically. You are the one doing both of those things. The same thing goes for a wetsuit. It might be the floatiest and most flexible wetsuit in the world with all the bells and whistles, but first of all, it has to fit you well. And secondly, 
uh, if it fits you well. If you swim well, then you're going to swim well whether you have an expensive wetsuit or a cheap wetsuit. And if you swim poorly, you're going to swim poorly regardless of the wetsuit. Uh, so let's put it like this uh, on the pricing topic. If you have 1,000 US dollars to spend on improving your swimming, including spending some of it on the wetsuit, I'd probably spend 200 to 300 uh, US dollars on an entry-level wetsuit from a reputable brand that that is good, uh, that is a perfect fit for me, uh, because remember, that is the number one thing. That leaves me uh, 700 to 800 US dollars, and I would probably use uh, a good chunk of that, let's say spending um, 300 to 450 US dollars on joining a swim squad, squad for three months. Now, okay, I'm not exactly sure about the prices here. I did Google around a little bit and I, it would depend a lot on the location you are, I guess, and also the, the country, of course. But let's say for 300 to 450 US dollars, you can join a swim squad, squad for three months and get to swim with them as much as you want. But it might be just a regular three times a week and that would be fine uh, and I wouldn't do this because it's always better to swim in a squad than to swim solo but but just because what it usually does for a lot of people is that it makes them swim more often and do longer sessions and just swimming more that's the number one key in becoming a better swimmer so so yeah again 300 to 450 US dollars 100 to 250 per month for a squad that sounds to me like a like a reasonable price that you could find a swim squad for and uh, then we are at 550 to 700 US dollars spent which means that I can probably uh, with the remaining money uh, 300 to 450 US dollars I can get let's say two one-on-one -on -one, uh, swim uh, coached swim sessions with video analysis uh, for the remainder of the money uh, and uh, yeah that would probably shave five to ten minutes off your Ironman swim of course depending on where you start at but for for the typical age grouper, I would say that that would sh shave five to ten minutes off your Ironman swim. All of those things, getting that uh, standard wetsuit and and spending three months in a squad and having a couple of private sessions with video analysis. Whereas if you just spend all your money on a one thousand uh, dollar wetsuit, then you might gain one to two minutes. Uh, so I'm shooting a bit of it from the hip here, of course. Uh, everybody's individual, but but I do think that. In general, that is the trend that that we would see if a lot of people uh, try to take one of these two approaches. Uh, so I think this is a great example, actually, of how we need to think about prioritizing where our triathlon money goes. It's uh, less about gear and more about uh, acquiring the fitness and the skills to swim, bike, and run better. So, so yeah, that's that's what it's what it's about. So if you're already swimming a lot and have already done uh, lots of sessions with swim coaches to get feedback on your technique and so on, uh, at that point, the one to two minutes saved with the best wetsuit possible could be well worth it. But um, yeah, if you're more of a 110 or slower uh, Ironman swimmer, 35 or slower half Ironman swimmer, you can get more bang for your buck by spending less on the wetsuit and, and more on other uh, other ways to improve your swimming that I uh, basically listed above. And uh, yeah, the final part of the question about the process of buying wetsuits it's yeah it's it's not easy i don't have any great solutions unfortunately if you have friends maybe you are part of a tri club then you could ask uh, people with a similar body size and shape as you if they have wetsuits that you could uh, you could try and uh, you could see if you like the wetsuit and then you could just order that and order the same size uh, but that might uh, not be possible. Uh, the other option could be if there is 
a brick and mortar store locally that sells wetsuits triathlon wetsuits i'd suggest discussing your options with them they might have some um some things they could offer but uh, other than that if that's also not an option yeah i would just select two to three wetsuits that you think might be good for you based on reputation and reviews and that is in your uh, target price range and order them to try on at home and return the ones that don't fit it's yeah it's annoying it's inconvenient but uh, i just don't think there's many options to that really uh, there is an opportunity here like in the running shoe business i think that uh, for some brick and mortar stores to offer shoe testing and purchase of the best pair as a combined service product um, but that you similarly you could argue that in wetsuits maybe maybe there will be brick and mortar stores to allow you to try a wetsuit on and actually swim in it and and then buy it and or, or do that with a few wetsuits obviously but sadly i don't think that this exists much today so yeah it is just a bit of a hassle I hope that you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictraffle.com and I have plenty of links there to uh, related episodes, uh, articles mentioned and so on. So have a look there or in the podcast notes in your podcast app. If you want to improve your triathlon performance and level up to achieve your next goal, there's probably no single better thing that you can do than to get some expert help along the way. At Scientific Triathlon, we provide coaching services that cater to every need from beginners to professionals. Where the athlete is in the center, the coaching is grounded in communication and individualization, and the coaches all have a wealth of experience, knowledge, and coaching skills. If coaching is out of your budget or not for you, then we also have ready-made training plans for different athlete levels and goal events. And hundreds, if not thousands, of athletes have already set big pbs and reached new performance levels with these plans uh, for the ready-made plans we have exchange and or money back guarantees so it's uh, a risk-free investment you can find all about our coaching training plans customized training plans and consultation options on scientifictriathlon.com and to discuss your options you can email me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and big thanks to our sponsors precision fuel and hydration that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com if you're looking for electrolytes and fueling products i would highly recommend trying them out you can use their free fuel generation planner or even get a free video consultation with the team to prepare your race strategy and don't forget to take 15 percent off your first order with the code tts23 and thank you to senate use the senate swim trainer to improve your technique power and swim training consistency even if you have just 15 minutes at home available you can get a time efficient senate workout done that will help you swim better and stronger you can try the senate risk free for up to 30 days and get 20 percent off your first order on senatesumtrainer.com forward slash tts thank you as always for listening keep training smart keep loving triathlon